from KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. The killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Arbery have led to renewed calls for racial equality and justice across the U.S. They have also reinforced numerous fears that many parents have about raising black children, fears that their children could be killed while jogging or sleeping in their home or otherwise living while black. In this hour of forum, we'll talk about the distinct challenges of raising black children in America, and we want to hear from you. Are you the parent of a black child? What's been your experience? That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This week, in a show of solidarity with the protests for racial equality, a baby names website posted a long list of names of black Americans who have been killed by police or vigilantes with the comment, each one of these names was someone's baby. It's a sobering testament to the realities of raising black children in America today, the worry and fear parents of black children feel for their kids, for their ability to thrive in a world where racism still exists and could be a threat to their lives. And here with me, to discuss this reality is Macheo Payne, Executive Director of Community and Youth Outreach, Director of Community Engagement with the California Children's Trust, and we welcome you to the program. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank I also you. want to welcome Marita Golden, who is the author of Saving Our Sons, Raising Black Children in a Turbulent World. She's also an award-winning novelist. Marita Golden, welcome. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. And uh, Mateo Payne, let me begin with you. And now, Simmer saying it's even more urgent than ever to have these conversations between black parents and their children uh, or the parents of black children. And you have two sons. And let me ask you to get personal with us just for a moment. Uh, I know this has to do with age, and it is age uh, uh, dependent. But there's also a lot of navigating that goes on between not wanting to create paranoia in your child and yet making them feel that they have to be protective uh, and that they can breathe free. Talk about your own experience. Yes, in, in our household, we talk about the innate greatness in our children. And so we establish a context of love first and foremost. And from that context, we started at a very early age. Uh, and like you said, age appropriately, if they're on the playground uh, playing with toy guns, we talk to them about the dangers that they face that other children on the playground may or may not face. And as they progress into their teens, it becomes about how they experience life driving around or as a, as a driver, as a passenger, as a teen. So with each stage, it's an iterative con conversation that's ongoing. It's also important, uh, is it not, to listen to what, whatever stage, whatever age you're talking to your kid, to listen to what he or she has to say, they have to say? parent experts say that after your child reaches four or five, they learn how to tune you out after the first two words. <laughs> so listening to your children is absolutely the only way uh, they can actually be heard and actually for adults to be able and parents to tailor their message to their child's understanding of the social context. And so 
listening is also not just to their words, but but observing their actions that go along with their words. And so it, it's a complicated thing that as parents, we can get wrong all the time. And so that's why it's an ongoing process. Uh, we don't want to have the pressure of just getting it right the first time. So it's a series of conversations. And if there's pushback from your child, um, uh, it's best to communicate in a very mutual and again, strong listening way, I presume. Well, b before any conversation and after any conversation, there should be smiles and hugs. Uh, loving your children is, is the best immunization from uh, the ills of racism. It's, it's not an anecdotal uh, uh, concept. It is a real life concept. By loving your children, that is how you're going to deliver the, the most appropriate message for your child in that moment. It's elevating to hear that, and I, I thank you for it. Uh, let me go to uh, Marita Golden on this. And Marita Golden, uh, you wrote a book called uh, Saving Our Sons, Raising Black Children in a Turbulent World. It was about the 90s, a different kind of turbulence now, but many of the same problems with racism. Uh, your son, let's talk about your personal history here. Your son was a victim of uh, police brutality after accidentally running through a red light. Yeah, um, we live in a in Prince George's County, which is one of the you know is touted as one of the wealthier black communities in the country. And uh, one night he was a new, inexperienced driver, and it was around ten, and he drove from our house about maybe half a mile away to a mall, and he drove through a red light. Um, he didn't realize he'd done it, but he did. And very quickly, um, several police cars were behind him, and he drove into the, the mall where he was actually headed, and the police cars surrounded him. And he did, as he had been told by my husband and I, to put his hands up, um, not make any sudden moves. But before he could really pretty much say anything, a police officer um, reached through the window uh, unlocked the car and just grabbed my son six feet tall, grabbed him out of the car, slammed him down on the hood of the car, slammed him on the ground, handcuffed him, and then proceeded to interrogate him. Um, so he came home that night. We were already in bed, and not until the next morning did we find out that he was bruised and, you know, had some injuries. So he had been given the talk. He'd done everything right, but he was a victim of police brutality. Fortunately, the state attorney of Maryland was a neighbor, and I was able to uh, do some investigation, found out that that police officer had a history of excessive force. Even despite that, however, after a, uh, lodging a complaint, it took a year to investigate this, and no charges were brought against a police officer. The only uh, justice we got was that that speed, the ticket for going through the red light, thanks to the intervention of the state's attorney, was torn up. My son didn't have to pay that. And that yeah, inspired me to write a novel about a similar incident. At least you got a novel out of it, but I'm just so sorry that you went through that and that your son went through that and that you did not get justice. And uh, we hear these stories all too often. Uh, Derek Chauvin, in fact, had what, about 18 complaints filed against him, the man who was responsible for George Floyd's death. Uh, let's talk uh, with you a bit about what can, because I know after this, you actually went to some trouble to 
uh, investigate and, and, and find out what the police were about. Uh, you know, your novelist curiosity took you in a number of different directions after this incident, in addition to writing a, no, a novel. Um, and you discovered that, uh, I think it's safe to frame it this way, uh, police, whether they're black police or white police, uh, profile. Yeah, what happened was after the death of Prince Jones, a young uh, student at Howard University, uh, that death actually inspired Ta-Nehisi Coates to write his book, um, Between the yeah. World and Me. I then began writing a novel called After, about a police incident where a police officer, a black police officer, shoots a young man during a stop because he thinks his cell phone is a gun. So I spent about two years talking to cops all over the country, and um, it was very, very revealing. Um, they have a very hard job, very difficult job, but one of the big problems is as my as commander of the 3rd District near my house told me, he was my main sort of informant, that training is a patchwork. It's all over the place. Um, there's no consistency, and that's one of the major problems, the poor training that police officers get. But every police officer I spoke to, black, white, acknowledge that young black males, 18 to 24, 25, 26, are profiled, and often police officers have a quota. In most big cities, they have to arrest a certain number of people, and they are often told, go out and find this, this profile person and arrest them. And black cops within many um, police forces have um, revealed that and protested against it. So it's a very muddy picture. Marita Golden, author of Saving Our Sons, Raising Black Children in a Turbulent World. And uh, let me go back to Macheo Payne, who's Executive Director of Community and Youth Outreach and Director of Community Engagement for California Children's Trust. Now, uh, Macheo, we're in this terrible pandemic, and uh, there's a disproportionate number of African Americans who are suffering with this virus and dying because of this virus. Is it important when you have conversations uh, with black children or with your children, for that matter, to talk about not only racism, but housing discrimination and segregation, for example, in uh, in medical health care and all of those low wage jobs and things that are a result to some great degree of our history? Absolutely. So unfortunately, there are opportunities throughout the day almost endless opportunities when you are with your child to ask questions and explain things that are happening uh, when they go to the store, when you uh, interact in society. There's plenty of opportunities, not just in the news, but in our experiences where children notice things. And if you ask them, what did you think about that? What was that? Uh, and they are more times than not acutely aware, but don't have the words. And so it's very important for us to, uh, as parents, give a range of possibilities for the children to have their own mind to be able to figure it out. Because the, the, what we want to do is tell them exactly what to do in every situation, but we can't predict the circumstances and the conditions that they're going to be in when they have to protect themselves, when they have to be safe, when they have to make choices, when their parents aren't there. And so. That is the ultimate challenge when uh, talking to your children, but it's always connected to the uh, experience that the parents have getting jobs, getting apartments, houses, and running into challenges. 
And Marita Golden, I've been reading uh, the point of view of talking to black children from a number of uh, black psychologists and uh, they talk about the importance of uh, not only what Mateo has said in terms of giving your children strength through love and through uh, being honest with them and all of that, uh, which is good advice for any parent under any circumstances, but there's something that uh, came to my attention that was really quite disturbing, uh, and that's the effect on mental health. Uh, JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, has a pediatrics uh, publication you may be familiar with, and the suicide of black children has nearly doubled between 2007 and 2017, and we need more research. There isn't enough research that's done, but this disproportionate number may have to do, I presume, with the disproportionate exposure to violence and trauma and racism, and uh, Mental health is a big, big issue here. How do you keep your kids really sane and stable? Well, we're in a mental health crisis um, in America and a mental health double crisis in the African-American community. Um, Lancet uh, just released yesterday the results of a study supported by the National Institutes of Health looking at the mental health of African-Americans in the wake of seeing so many of these um, these dreadful videos where black people are killed while jogging, walking, whatever. And they, they found that the mental health of African-Americans is, is really, really uh, very, very poor. And they recommended a, a, a national initiative to, to really deal, not only stopping the, these killings, but then also dealing with the impact on African Americans, which impacts our physical health, our ability to how many days we can feel like going to work. It ripples through our communities, ripples through the economy. And only a, about a third of African Americans who need mental health care actually get it. And we need to talk to our children about the fact that they are not just victims. We need to talk to them about um, ways to deal with stress, teach them coping mechanisms that they can weave into the fabric of their lives, journaling, um, being willing to show emotion and not being afraid of that, being willing to ask for help, to redefine what we mean by weakness and talk about vulnerability instead. So there's many, many opportunities in this ongoing crisis in the black community and the current crisis to really face the mental health issue. Talking about raising black children in America with Marita Golden and Michelle Payne, I want to bring Brianna Holt into this conversation. She's a writer. Her recent piece was published in The Atlantic. It was called, Now I Understand Why My Parents Were So Strict. And Brianna Holt, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Hi, thank you. Excited to be here. Well, I was quite stirred by your piece in The Atlantic, and I want to talk about it because essentially it gets down to uh, your parents being rather strict with you and rather prohibitive of uh, their concerns of protecting you, That I mean, the result of their concerns of protecting you. And uh, it took you a while to learn why they were doing that and the necessity of doing that. Yeah. When I was younger, I very much just had an idea that my parents were super strict. And it was very annoying for me as a child because I didn't really see my peers um, experiencing the same journey that I was having as a child. They didn't have the same roles. They didn't have the same curfews. Um, and they didn't really seem like 
there was a lot that they had to follow growing up. Um, and as I got older, and especially having an older brother really helped me see this as well, and seeing that the rules that were put in place when he started to drive a car for the first time and be told and see that he was told that he can't ride with the music loud or with the windows down or just how serious my parents were about him not having friends in the car, um, it really started to make me realize that my parents were implementing these rules not so much to be harsh or cruel parents as a child would believe whenever somebody is putting rules in place, but because they were really looking out for our safety and trying to do whatever they could do to avoid any um, discrimination or mishaps or um, racially driven stops. In fact, uh, there was an early stage in your development where you had some white friends and your parents didn't want you to sleep over their home for a sleepover. Yeah, I felt like when I got older, I also started to realize um, who my friends, who my parents let me spend time with overnight at their homes. And it mostly, I noticed a pattern that it was mostly my friends of color. Um, and the situation that I mentioned in my article was one time I went to the mall with one of my white friends who was stealing at the mall, was known for stealing. Um, had enough money to buy what she wanted, but kind of was just doing what people would call kids doing kid things, which I realized is not allowed um, to black children. And so she was filling from the mall. And then when the store, the store clerk realized that something was taking place, I was the person who was accused of stealing. Um, and it wasn't until a bystander decided to intervene that finally the store clerk and the mall cop decided to check my friend and found the stolen merchandise. Yeah, that was a very powerful narrative, I thought, that you were writing about, because here you were the black child not stealing as your parents had instructed you and as you felt was wrong and uh, your white friend was, and you got blamed for it, essentially. All of the attention was turned upon you. That must have been, I presume, a transformative experience for you. Definitely. Um, I was around the age of 15 or 16 when that happened, and I just remember feeling humiliated and embarrassed. And I think it was the first time when I really started to realize I'm Black. Um, obviously, I've always known I'm Black, but it, it made me realize what being Black in America meant for me. Um, it felt like I, I was out of options. I was trying to defend myself. I, I was crying. I was you know, wasn't arguing back and still I wasn't being believed. And it shocked me that my friend had gone unchecked until somebody else jumped into the conversation. Um, and I think a lot of black children realize at an early age that we are kind of treated like adults while we're children and that we don't have the same experience growing up as some of our peers. And it really teaches us to be, to always be on our feet and sometimes paranoid. Um, and when, whenever we go out into the world and hang out with other people because we're not sure how the situation can change very quickly. Can you talk about that balance between uh, not being too paranoid and yet at the same time needing to be careful, needing to be on your guard? Yes, I, I think one great example is um, as I'm older now and I make my own doctor's appointments and dentist appointments, I preferably decide to only use black doctors or doctors who are of color because there's so much, so many studies out there that prove 
that there's racial bias um, in healthcare and that black women especially are not believed as much when they're in pain or aren't given the same treatment um, as non-black patients. And so when explaining this to some of my friends who are not black, this could sound bizarre and sound like I'm paranoid and sound like I think that the world is out to get me. Um, but internally, I know that my fear is valid. And, and there are studies out there that prove this. And I've been in situations before where I felt like I wasn't being taken seriously when it came to my health. And so I think we do have to be very hyper aware of how to navigate the world as a black person and know that there are cases where people will not trust us and treat us the same way, but also to find a balance in continuing to live and enjoy life, um, not to stay indoors, not to be afraid that anytime you step out that something will happen to you, but to just be very careful um, in how you go about life, I would say. Brianna Holt is with us. She's a writer, a recent piece. Now I understand why my parents were so strict, was published in The Atlantic. You going to be so strict with your children following your parents' footsteps as a parent? Um, I most likely will. Whether my kids are full black or mixed, I know that the world will see them as black children. And as long as things continue to be this way, I will have the same conversations with my kids that my parents did with me. Well, are you a parent of a black child? And what's been your experience? We do want to hear from you and what questions you might have for our guests about raising black children. Brianna Holt and Marita Golden and Macheo Payne are with us. And you can be with us as well. You can give us a call right now at our toll free number. The number to call is 866-733-6786. That's again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. I'm going to read a comment from a listener named Daria who says, I'm the white mother of a biracial four-year-old, uh, and with my husband we feel compelled to explain but are struggling to find the right words to talk to our young child about what is going on. We're both immigrants to this country, so my black husband has never experienced the talk from his own parents. I feel like brown and black kids like mine perhaps should not know the harsh reality of racism and what they may face in the future so early. What do your guests think? And uh, we'll go to you on this, Macheo Payne. We're talking about age appropriateness here, too, but maybe also about the question of does something like what happened to George Floyd need to be shielded at a certain age from children? Well, with today's technology, you cannot control what your children see. Even if you control the devices you provide for them, they have access to other devices, not only from their parents. And the biggest challenge with parents that are not black with raising black children is like you said, not knowing and talk to other parents, talk to other black parents, talk to other uh, non-black parents of black children. The more you talk about it, the more you can develop because as parents, <laughs> we don't have it all figured out either. And so again, taking away the pressure of how do we have this quote unquote talk, get it wrong the first five times, but keep having the conversation and get past that initial trepidation of not having the correct word. Good advice. And again, Michelle Payne is Executive Director of Community and Youth Outreach, Director of Community Engagement for California Children's Trust. We're going to continue with Marita Golden, Brianna Holt, and your calls and emails. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny.
I'm Michael Krasny. This is the Forum Program, and we're talking about raising black children in America with Maceo Payne, Marita Golden, and Brianna Holt. And let's bring your calls on. Bridget, you're on with us. Good morning. Morning. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to share uh, some of it, one of the many experiences we've had as parents of three black children. We moved out here from Toronto, uh, moved to Mountain House uh, late 2008. And I was just shocked after the kind of reception uh, I got at my daughter's our last, our third child's uh, parents-teachers meeting. At that time, our first daughter was already at Yale Law School. And so for us, <laughs> education is important. Um, there were many parents lined up to see this math teacher. Um, when it was my turn with my daughter, the teacher said to me, oh, I'm surprised that you're here. And when I asked her why she was surprised, she said to me that, oh, well, you know, typically where she's taught before, black parents don't come to these kind of things. And I was just bewildered as to why she would assume that as a black parent, I wouldn't show up to my own child's parents' teacher's meeting. Um, so it's just the challenges that we face as black parents. It's not, that, not just that we have to worry about our kids when they're out there. You know, if they do what other teenagers would do, we could get into trouble. But we constantly have to tell our children, I know we tell our children, that if, if they're asked to jump one foot, so they have to jump 10 feet to prove themselves. Because obviously, even in the classrooms, uh, the teachers just assume that they don't have capacities. Mm-hmm. Rita Golden, let's talk to you about this, uh, not only in terms of what Bridge is bringing up about prejudgments where children are concerned, and there are too many of those in our institutions, obviously, still, but also what she's bringing up in terms of, uh, of education and just making kids aware of the fact that they're facing challenges uh, that well, white children don't necessarily have to face. Well, what struck me was about that anecdote was the fact that the white teacher felt that she had the privilege of speaking very honestly um, an opinion that is actually quite racist. That is, very often um, black people on the workplace, black children in school, find themselves in a hostile environment where they may not be called the N-word, but they're subject to all these forms of, you know, what's called subtle racism, but which is really quite devastating. And white people will say those things and are so disconnected from their privilege, their status as whites, and, and the realities of racism, that they can't even hear the racism woven into the statement. So that that's the the first thing that struck me. And um, when we have our children in, you know, the the irony is that when our kids are often in, in underfunded inner city schools, black parents will move heaven and earth, work three jobs to get them into the best schools that are often majority white. But in those schools, our children are vulnerable to um, – different kinds of assault and different issues that can have just as negative an impact on their ability to achieve and to um and to really really do well so it's a constant as as Macheo said it's a constant conversation it's not just one conversation it's a constant continually evolving conversation that we end up having with our kids and wow. i think that also parents need to 
that's a teaching moment where that teacher could be informed that that statement was, whether she knew it or not, offensive. And I think we're in a moment now where more white people are willing to hear that. What do you do about something like, um, and let me just follow up on what you just said, uh, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, I mean, a lot of black parents uh, or parents of black children feel a terribly onerous uh, sense of pain and anxiety and fear, not only for their children, but for themselves when something like that occurs. And it's difficult not to shield your children, uh, but on the one hand, but on the other hand, you have to make them aware of the fact because they're responding, they can read you emotionally. Well, I know that in many schools, um, many, I was talking to a friend last night whose niece, uh, after the sh- after the murder of George Floyd, even though the children were on Zoom, the school psychologist had a session with those children to talk about what had happened, to process those feelings. And in the days following, my friend had numerous conversations with her daughter, uh, with, with her with her niece, where her her niece went from the police are bad. I think I don't like the police. To my friend reminding her niece that there were police people, there were police officers in their own family. So it once again is continuing conversation. My husband and I, for example, were with our granddaughter the other day, and we were talking about this. And I asked my granddaughter, who's nine, if she had seen the video the actual video of George Floyd's murder. And um, she said she hadn't. So I said, that's good. Well, my husband felt that even at nine, she needed to see some of that video. And once she had seen it, to to talk about it. So we're we're grappling with so many issues that are are very serious, you know, when, when it comes to raising our kids. It becomes very difficult in a situation like that where you're on different sides of uh, of the issue. But let me get another caller on with us, and that's Tiffany. Tiffany, you're on. Good morning. Good morning. I was just, mine was just talking about the experience that I just recently dealt with. Thank you for having me on um, with my one of my sons um, who have two biracial ch- ch- children, and one son was just sitting there in tears, deeply in tears. And, you know, you're asking what is wrong and blurting out that I don't understand why does half of myself hate the other half of myself so much. Mm. And as a parent, the only thing you can do is cry and try to explain to them that not everybody is bad you know, you were made out of love, so embrace that. But what's still going on, and you're telling me, you know what, Mom, I just really need to watch the news because I really want to know the truth. And I feel that the news will tell me the truth. And you will too, Mom. And I'm like, oh, my God. And this, my child is eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do struggle with trying to put them in the best schools so that you can kind of bubble them in a way. But it's still hard because every day it's still the question of why, 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 why. And as a parent, as a mom, a single mom, don't know what to do anymore. I can't explain to you, hey, this is the way of the world because I'm still trying to shelter you. But at the other side, I do need to arm you 
with what's what reality is out there. Well, Tiffany, you've stated it beautifully, that that difficulty of navigating between those two. And uh, let me me hear what Macheo Payne has to say about this, Macheo. Yes. And when you talk to your children and they say something like that, crying is absolutely the most appropriate thing to do and to continue to talk to them about how they feel. It's not going to be wrapped up in a bow at the end of each conversation. And what I have found is after a while, they will come to you, the parent, with questions, with ideas, uh, and trying to keep it on an ongoing basis and not, and, and what's important for parents to do is move away from fear because it actually weakens their, their immune system. And in the schools, I, I, I did want to address that briefly, is that there is a lot of racism perpetuated by the adults in all of these systems. And as a black parent, there is an additional job or task of educating those adults about your child. And my approach has traditionally in the past been, let me talk to this teacher, just talk to them about my child. Just tell them things that no one would know about them. Tell them how they think, how they feel. In order to humanize your child, uh, lecturing a teacher is one way, but is not, when it came to my child, my academic hat got put aside because I wanted my child to be successful and I did not want my child to suffer at the hands of an ignorant or racist teacher. And so talking to the adults in the systems as well from a perspective of reminding them that your child, your black child is a human as well. Related question, Michelle, from a listener named Peter, I'd like to go to you on. Uh, Peter says, nobody seems to be addressing the profiling of small children. I've heard there are statistics about black preschoolers having a much higher rate of being expelled. Yes, so I did research on disproportionate discipline of black children, and I had colleagues that were also writing dissertations on disproportionate uh, suspension of preschoolers. Tasha Henneman wrote that dissertation for Mills. And if you could imagine a a four-year-old getting expelled, it's unfathomable. And this is something that even at the state level, they have just now uh, moved to ban such uh, actions, and now they've uh, moved it up to middle school. But it's it's really ridiculous to expect, uh, and, and it, it actually reflects other research that shows that adults look at black children and children of color as several years older than they actually are. Uh, uh, accusing three, four, five-year-olds of, of sexual assault when uh, that is a totally absurd ludicrous thing. That is something that is wrong with the adults. That is a uh, illness in their own perception of children, and it has to be addressed. And let me go back, if I may, to Brianna Holt. Brianna Holt, uh, from your experience, uh, and you write about it, as I said, vividly in The Atlantic, uh, I'm interested in, in finding out what you can think about in terms of your own upbringing and your parents protecting you that would be valuable for people to hear in terms of making kids feel not only proud of themselves, but feel a sense of self-worth, feel a sense that they can go out and really deal with the world in the ways that you had to deal with the world. Yeah, I think um, one thing that's really important that my parents did and what black parents or parents of black children can do is make sure that their children are immersed in black spaces 
So as I mentioned in my article, I was attending a predominantly white Catholic school. So not just a predominantly white school, but Catholic school. So it was also very strict, and there was a very conservative um, way of thinking that maybe didn't necessarily relate to me and my family or our culture. And so my parents made sure that um, the neighborhood that I grew up in was predominantly black. And so my parents made sure that I played, you know, on the um, soccer team, my my community soccer team, and that I was a Girl Scout. And so I was always outside of school, surrounded by like-minded, young, black boys and girls. And I think if it hadn't been for that, then I don't know what my self-worth or my um, proudness of my blackness would be like today. Um it was my parents, like someone mentioned before, wanted me to go to this school because it was a better school than the school that was in our neighborhood. Um, you know, the, the classrooms weren't crowded. I was guaranteed to always be able to receive help and have proper training that I wouldn't have received in my public school in my neighborhood. But my parents did make sure that I was still meeting people who looked like me, who thought like me, who had similar parents so that I could have friends and go um, hang out with friends that were similar to the same experience that I was having. And again, Brianna Holt is a writer. Her piece that appeared in The Atlantic is called, uh, titled, Now I Understand Why My Parents Were So Strict. And if I go back to you, Marita Golden, uh, Abraham X. Kendi, who was uh, on our program with us, uh, who was a National Book Award winner, a book on anti-racism, said the greatest white privilege is life. And I'm struck by this whole notion that um, black children, especially when they hear of something like the George Floyd murder or, and, and as uh, uh, Macheo Payne said earlier, they're getting access to all kinds of things with social media and so forth. It's very difficult for parents to keep out of their lives. Um, what about their lives and valuing their lives? How do you really instruct or at least help breed a sense of wisdom in a child when they feel so vulnerable, when they feel, you know, they can be stopped by the police and uh, something while they're living while black can take their lives. Well, I just think that Macheo hit, hit it on the head when he said, you know, that loving your child is, is a powerful antidote to racism. It's not going to dismantle systemic racism, but it's going to arm your child um, yeah, but with, forgive me, Marie. I'm talking about the fear here that, that children mm-hmm. have. Yeah. Well, the fear, the, the fear. Also, I think we need to talk about the role not just of black parents, but the institutions that we're part of, the rest of American citizenry, in protecting black children. I think that to say that black parents have to do this work alone is unrealistic. And unfair. And I think that as much as we talk about the things that black families have to do, black parents have to do, we need to make this a national conversation that that says black children belong to all of us. Uh, Let me get another caller on. Sean, that's you. Welcome. You're on the air. Hey, hello. Um, My question is, sort of a mental health question, back to that comment from Macheo or Maria. Um, A lot of times black young men have a challenge with um, expressing their emotions. And and despite the fact that they may experience racial hostilities from the police or, you know, my son 
his experience. He's six foot four. You know, he wears his hair in locks and he goes into a store and people follow him, right? And 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 my question is, um, are, am I there? Can you guys hear? Yeah, me? yeah, we can hear you. Uh, my question is, um, how do you how do you encourage conversations with your your children, particularly black young men, who always say, "I'm cool, I got this." They don't really have the emotional literacy to talk about how they're feeling, even though they may be fit, they may be afraid. They may be insecure. They may have concerns. Like, what what do you recommend parents or teachers or even their you know their friends to do to actually have the kind of emotional conversation so that black young men don't just revert to "I got this, I'm cool." Sean, thank you for that question. Let me go back to you, Michelle Payne. That's an excellent question, and uh, I learned this through my own personal research. I started joking with my son. I would answer the question before he gave the same, fine, I'm good. And what I realized after a while was that was a conditioned response because I only had so much attention to give my child. And the more I learned to sit with that answer and then sit with them and then let's watch TV and just to stay in their presence, stay present. You got to make more time to talk to your children. You got to make time to just be around them because when I realized how much I process things in my own head, then I looked at my son and said, he's processing right. He's processing the 500 things that happened that day. Which one does my dad need to hear? Which one do I need to speak about? Which one is critical? And those are conversations that take time. It takes thinking time. It takes sitting time. And it takes time to just be with your child, to allow them and to, and to have your children trust you to hold that information. I'm not saying it's easy, but that's where I found the most success. And Michelle, and I, maybe, I, I also think I'm that, sorry, Marita Golden, go ahead. I also think that in the African-American community, unfortunately, there still exists a stigma around seeking mental health care, counseling, and therapy. And we need to destigmatize that. And um, growing up in this society that does so little to support people's mental health, no matter what color they are, we often need tools that professionals can give us. And black families are under so much stress that more of us really do need to, to introduce ourselves to therapy and counseling to deal with the stress and the strains that are unfairly upon us. And we need to introduce our children to what therapy means, is, and can give them. My husband's um, son, when he was about seven or eight, um, after my, my husband and I were getting ready to get married, his son had all kinds of feelings about this. And his mother began taking him to who my, who my stepson called the talking doctor. And he learned from an early age that he could process things that were confusing to him. So I think in addition to everything Macheo has said, which I, I agree with completely, because we have this enduring stigma in the black community and resistance to seeking mental health care, we need to model to our children 
that they can do that and that there are important tools they can learn about how to grapple with these issues. If I could just echo some of what you've been saying, uh, Marita, the idea of building the institutions more that you alluded to before and uh, of having the institutions support. And this is these are rough economic times with the pandemic and all, but even not only with respect to mental health, but the school districts still receive uh, non-white school districts receive, well, literally billions of dollars less over the course of this mm -hmm. country in funding. Mm -hmm. And so we, we need this idea of the institutions uh, backing up the children to a greater extent. A question for you, actually, Marita, from a listener named Susan, who says, as a parent of African-American children, one challenge has been to help them learn how to differentiate real discrimination from random unfairness. There is hurt and discrimination and additional hurt in perceiving it where it may not exist. Um, well, I think that's where black parents educate kids about what real actual discrimination is and and like mateo with, with our kids what we would do every time we went to a movie if we were looking at television we wove conversations into uh just looking at a movie or looking at a tv show that helped them think critically so it wasn't just about the talk about the police the talk about racism but how do you think critically about everything that's going on around you. And I think that's another skill that we need. And that, that will, I think most kids in the final analysis know what real racism is and know what favoritism is. I well, here, here for critical thinking yeah. and educating students. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael. Macheo, go ahead. Yes, uh, there is promising news for the last couple of comments. The state of California is adopting and endorsing uh, broadening mental health supports. The schools are where uh, children mostly are able to access mental health. And right now the system we have uh, only reaches about four or 5% of children in California. And uh, there's a, the Children's Trust has worked on a Cal-AIM letter and legislation that can broaden the Medi-Cal uh, distribution to broaden the ability for mental health to be provided by community experts mm -hmm. and not just uh, academic experts. The, as we all know, uh, we may not know, the DSM is, is not the best book for black children and that the mental health system and the, uh, is deeply flawed and does more to perpetuate harm than actually heal. And so if you go to the childrenstrust.org, you can be a supporter and actually take part in seeing that California does more for its children around mental health. Yeah, thank you for that. It's uh, positive news indeed. And mm -hmm. let me bring another caller on, and that's Raz. Raz, you're on the air. Good morning. Well, good morning, Michael. Uh, first, let me just say that uh, I really appreciate what you're doing here, having this conversation on, on, on the radio. In my mind, it's going to really mean enlightening the white community about this situation, because what's frustrating for me is that um, officials in positions of authority and the white community at large uh, somehow can't quite get it. Um, when I hear that there's no, uh, a problem with racism within the uh, law enforcement community, I'm just baffled. I'm 67. I'm black. I grew up in L.A. When I was eight years old, here I am riding my bicycle in a neighborhood. Uh, there's a street sign, and as a kid, you're on a bike, you run right through the street sign. Hey, there's no cars coming. I ran through the street sign. It was completely safe, but whoa, 
A patrol car comes up and the cop stops me. I'm eight. He gives me a ticket for a traffic violation. Now, I'm eight. Of course, there's not much an eight-year-old is going to retain. I lost the ticket. Nine months later, now the kid is nine. I'm crossing an intersection against a don't walk sign. A traffic cop on a motorcycle pulls me over and questions me. But then what? A patrol car rolls up with a couple of cops. They handcuffed me. They put a nine-year-old kid in the back of the patrol car because I had a warrant. And the whole way down to the police station, what am I hearing? What you doing in a white neighborhood, little boy? Oh, by the way, where's your mom at? Out, you know, selling, you know, what I'm saying, selling her body. Mm-hmm. You know, accusing my mother of being a prostitute. Now, this has been going on all my life. And for people to not see the blatant racism within the law enforcement community, for me, is just baffling. I get frustrated. But thank you for having this show and for having these wonderful people on, because perhaps folks can wake up and see that this is a problem. And Rez, thank you for telling your thank you for telling your story. But the only way it's going to change is if white people participate in this uh, change that we need so so critically. Thank you, sir. You're doing yeah. a great job, and thanks to you and your producers. Yeah, appreciate your your good words and appreciate your telling your story. And I'm looking at a comment from Carol who says. It has been extremely challenging, especially dealing with different ways my mixed-race son has been treated at school, starting as young as two years old in preschool. Now he's 14 and has already been followed around by a mall security guard and had the N-word yelled at him as he was walking home from school. When I have tried to talk to school officials in the past, I have been discounted. It is very frustrating and upsetting. Do you know of any support groups for parents for African-American kids, of African-American kids? And I'm going to go to you on this, Macheo. So there are the support groups in the African-American community are our families. That is our primary level of support. If you don't have access to that, you cannot always depend on the systems around you. Um, But for black children, it's most important, I've got to mention this, to separate the joy, the innate greatness, the, 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 the wonderful culture of black people from the negativity of this situation we're discussing. Uh, when a child learns of these things, they internalize it. We do that. And so to separate that from who they are, these uh, issues have nothing to do with you. But unfortunately, you need to be aware of them because you may have to face them and be impacted by them. So that is a, a, a tough, tough question because unfortunately, there are not enough institutional supports, which gives a nod to foundations that need to do more to fund black children development, black child development. I am an executive director over an organization that serves African-American families in Oakland to reduce gun violence. And all of these women and gentlemen have, most of them have children and we have very little support. We have very little funding. Uh, There's some funding coming down the pipeline, but I'm looking for the foundations to make large scale investments in mental health supports. For black children. Well, speaking of mental health, we had said uh, I had said earlier that I read a number of black psychologists, and they suggest back to the talk with the kids, maybe some pleasant activity post talk, uh, so the child doesn't get overly worried or afraid. And uh, the reality is, uh, you can talk about community or family members who are making a difference, who are agents of change. And uh, after talking about racism and unfairness, maybe talk about change and what can be as opposed to what is. Thank you all for being with us. It's really good to have you. Macheo Payne, Marita Golden, Brianna Holt. I'm Michael Krasny. 
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.